we are experiencing a paradigm shift. A fundamental change in the way we usually do things. We are intentionally choosing to see the silver lining. Opportunity arises. We can shine a light on the things that weren't working well, on those things that weren't really working at all. We can regroup, reevaluate, and re-engineer. It's time to explore new patterns and paradigms. Those that inspire us to rise above the chaos and explore how the conditions of today can take us to a better tomorrow. Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast, from Hudson Valley Pattern for Progress. You're listening to Season 2, Episode 19, The Future of the Arts and Small Theaters, with your host, Pattern President and CEO, Jonathan Drapkin. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Patterns and Paradigms. We hope you were as inspired by the three newly elected state senators as we were. For those who are feeling a lack of optimism in the future of politics, we offer Exhibit A and hope you feel a bit better. Please remember to subscribe to our podcast at Apple or wherever you find your favorite podcasts and take a moment to share an episode with a friend. This week's bubble of trend, the arts. This one is complicated. If there is one sector that will take longer to come back, it is the arts and in particular live indoor events, such as the theater or concerts. Think about it. They are based on hundreds, if not thousands of people being inside of a venue and pretty much sitting next to each other. Will everyone have gotten a vaccine? Will everyone still wear a mask? The lobbies are not built in a way that can accommodate large crowds, let alone socially distanced ones. Outdoors should be better, but for this summer, here's how it works. Tours for the rock and country acts need to be assembled by now. Then they have to be contracted with the venues. So the venues have to say, well, how many people can we have? And then the venues need to sell tickets or the math simply doesn't work. Listen to our guest today for more on this. So far, this is a trend with hopefully a bubble that will burst and we will all get to enjoy um, our favorite rock act or Broadway show once again. I'm here with my partner at Pattern, Joe Chaika. Hey, Joe. What's your sense of the arts in the Hudson Valley and their need to come back? I think the arts play a critical role in the Hudson Valley, whether it's a large venue like Bethel Woods or if it's small little independent theaters like Shadowland or the Paramount Theater in Middletown or the Bardavon, UPAC. They all play a really important role, not just for, for tourism and for the hospitality industry, but for local people who are working in these venues, it's not just the person on the stage, but it's the person behind the curtain, the person selling the ticket, the person cleaning up afterward. It, they're, they're jobs. They're not super high paying jobs. You're not going to make a million dollars doing it, but it's important to the economy and it plays a role. 
I think for years you've been telling me about, you know, how when we think what does a good Main Street downtown need, one of the anchor institutions has always been, well, do you have a theater? You know, what do you have to draw people downtown? That's right. You know, the the theater is a uh, it's the it's the nucleus, right? It's it's you know, there's there's so many activities that go on within a theater. That's not just the show. It's it's the energy. It's the vibe. It's the it's the lifeblood of a main street. Um, You can have cafes and you can have restaurants and you can have bars and, and breweries centered in and around these places. And they all pull together and really, really create a, a life and, and creativity on the main street. And that that's the other aspect that the arts do is it it, it makes people enthusiastic um, to be creative. And with without that creative thought process and without that ability to to pull your creative juices together and act not only as an independent person in creativity, but as a group in creativity. Um, you know, we're, we're not, we're not going to go anywhere fast. You know, there are those people that have always supported the idea of STEM, which is science, technology, engineering, and math. Math, correct. And then there is those people that make STEM and add an A in the middle for the arts. And so it becomes STEAM. And the belief has always been that the arts impact the way that your creativity um, is allowed to evolve for the other four areas. And that the need for the arts to come back is critical. And in fact, Pattern is gonna do their part. Um, This year, we don't have our facility where we did our annual fundraising dinner to go back to anymore. It was an events location. We used to have 500 people from around the region join us there. It's been sold actually to an arts entity, a production group, um, which is kind of ironic in the sense, but so we're taking our annual fundraising effort on the road and we're gonna do seven small events, but one the, the theme of those events is celebrating the arts. We're gonna do our little share to try to help bring back the arts in the Hudson Valley. And it's gonna be a great time. So I would encourage everyone to come. <laughs> Although well, yeah, it's they just minimum start, amount of guests. <laughs> they just have to start checking our website. It'll be great. Thanks, Joe. Thank you. Um, our guest today is Chris Silva. Um, Patterns and Paradigm has gotten to know Chris for over 20 years. The ultimate showman for the Hudson Valley, producer of concerts, events, guest speakers, and facilities such as the Bardavan in Poughkeepsie or UPAC in Kingston. Chris is, is, is the only limitation to what Chris does in the arts is his own mind's capacity to say, what else can we do? I hope you'll enjoy this episode because Chris does bring up how the pandemic gave him the opportunity to think about programming, involvement of others in that programming. And it it really is special from a special person. We hope you enjoy the episode.
Hey, Chris, good to see you again. I mean, I guess our listeners can't see you, but I can see you a little bit here as we record in Zoom. How are you faring during the pandemic? Hey, Jonathan, uh, uh, good to see you as well. Uh, you know, fine. I mean, you know, we've been healthy. My family's all healthy. Um, uh, you know, we've been able, as we'll talk about, to keep the uh, the work aspect of my life pretty together. And, uh, you know, it, frankly, um, you know, I've made a career working nights and weekends, and I haven't worked a night or a weekend for over a year. And I don't, it's okay. <laughs> I don't mind. <laughs> well, and, and that that, off. you know, for the people that don't know you, we're talking about someone who spent decades working nights and weekends. So when when Chris says, hey, I don't mind for the past year, th- th- this is a guy that works really hard. So um, so for our listeners, then why don't you explain just what you do, I'm very familiar, but you know the facilities you manage and and give. Why sure. don't you just give people a little background? Yeah, no, happy to. Yeah, uh, since 1994, um, I've been the executive director of the Bardavon Opera House in uh, Poughkeepsie, New York, which is a 944 seat, uh, gorgeous old theater built in 1869, oldest continuously operating theater in New York. And we also uh, own and manage the Ulster Performing Arts Center, uh, UPAC, in Kingston, New York, which is a 1927 vintage theater, seats 1,500 people. And um, and lastly, we own, well, I, well, we don't own them, but we manage and present the Hudson Valley Philharmonic, which is the region's oldest professional symphony orchestra, uh, celebrated 60th year in 2019. And we're hoping to get 61 or two in there one of these days because we've been stalled in the middle of 60 and 61. But yeah, we, we do about 100 events a year, um, uh, bringing in about 100,000 people to our communities and um, including a lot of children. We do a big education program, which is 20,000 kids every year. So we're very uh, active organization in two cities and I work a lot of nights and weekends as a result of all that activity. I mean, a hundred shows, you know, there's only 50 weeks. So, you know, do the math. I know. And it's like, yeah, in, in, a, in a strange way, I will also say that my life was more complicated and yet not having to drive through nine counties to do my job. Everything now right. done via zoom has actually been less wear and tear for me, but for many other people, you and I know they had to go to work every day and this has not been fun. So. No, no, no. Many people had to go to work every day and, uh, you know, I can't, you know, people in grocery stores, for, for instance, you know, who are kind of like forgotten because they're not, you know, they don't work in the health industry. Uh, I can't even, you know, it's unbelievable what they've had to do. Um, but yeah, yeah, that's that's my story. And, um, you know, I've been working. It isn't like I stopped work. It's just uh, I stopped doing what I usually do, you know, which is put on a lot of performances. So um, so that's been strange. You know, as we'll get to, I have been doing things. I mean, we have been putting on performances. They just haven't been live because we can't do them live. So. Well, no, you're 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 one of those theaters, and we'll get to that in a little bit. It's funny you bring up yeah. the uh, the person who 
you know, is in, uh, you know, stocking food. I I've made Dale, who is the guy in my little supermarket where I live in Rock Hill yeah. and Sullivan County. I've made him into kind of a folk hero. He doesn't even know it yet. But the guy has not <laughs> missed a day of work since this started. Right. The guy is just right. sitting there going, my job is to make certain, Jonathan, that you have food and and how underappreciated someone like that was pre-COVID. And now you got to see how important he was. Of course, the healthcare workers, of course, right. you know, everyone else. But so, Chris, what was the uh-oh moment when the pandemic started for you? You must have had things booked everywhere. Oh, my God. I, it's, I have a good story. <laughs> On March 5th, which, as you may remember, was seven days before the door slammed shut. We were in New York City with 50 Hudson Valley Philharmonic musicians stuffed into a recording studio that wasn't built for 50 musicians. We were arm in arm. I mean, it was barely room with six French performers. We were rehearsing uh, for five hours in this environment. Um, uh, for a show the next night at the Beacon Theater where we were backing Jane Birkin, uh, Charlotte Gainsborough, and Iggy Pop, of all people. Um, and That's that, and all we knew, yeah, it was a weird, it was a really weird combination. It was a great show, but it was weird. Um, you know, all we knew back then, back, back away before everything closed, was, don't, you know, wash your hands. Right. Um you know, keep your distance, but wasn't we hadn't got into the words of, you know, six foot distance. None of that had happened. Social distancing wasn't even a, an expression yet, you know. And then we did a show for twenty five hundred people at the Beacon Theater and loaded it out, you know, as well. So here we are, you know, acting like everything is fine for 48 hours in New York City. We get back on the Monday and we're talking about what we see happening and we go, oh, I think it's going to be, I think we'll be okay. I think people are still doing shows. And then, you know, uh, 24 hours later, I said to Stephen, I think we're going to have to close. This is not sounding good. And then on the, uh, like the 11th, just before Cuomo announced it, I started a press release about closing and I, and we had a show on the 13th, Brit Floyd, a show, you know, a touring show from Europe. Um, who, who called us and said, what do you mean you're not going to do the show? And it's fine in Europe. Everything's fine in England. And I'm like, oh, really? Well, just wait. And um, they said, oh, I'm so disappointed. I, 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 they're there. They're, they were in Kingston, actually. The band was in Kingston because I think it was the day before. And I said, I'm sorry. I, I just don't see this is not going to happen. And then sure enough, you know, by six o'clock that night, Cuomo closed it down. So we had an inkling, but, you know, a week before we're jammed in a teeny little room with 60 people rehearsing for hours and hours. And, you know, what also is ironic about that. Just down the hall, there was another rehearsal of the Almond Brothers uh, tribute that was going to be at Madison Square Garden jammed with musicians. We knew a lot of them and three of them got sick. Three of them got COVID. And one of them is one of them is Larry Campbell, who, you know, you know, Larry Campbell from sure. Woodstock. Um, he said, I, I'm sure I got sick at that tribute because, you know, it, it happens. But we were in the same building, <laughs> you know, it's like down the hall. You know, it's so weird. So well, weird. But, but 
And Chris, what people Nobody don't understand, you know, I, I got to learn a little bit about this when I was working at Bethel Woods, but you're booking what? for six months, a year in advance. Oh, a year. Oh, easily. Oh, over a year. Over a year. Yeah. Well, we actually, right now, we have shows booked for a year from now because, you know, obviously we had to move everything, but uh, no, we book a year or more in advance all the time. So it's been. It's been weird. The only positive about it, if, you know, in terms of my business, is that we're all in it together. We all know this is happening. It isn't like I'm going to get some agent on the phone. He's going to be mad because I got to move the show. <laughs> he knows he has to move the show. Everybody has to move the show. So it was it was easier than it would have been if it was like just my decision or something. You know, it was the world that shut down. So, yeah, it was. There was a, it was a lot of uh-oh moments in the midst um, of this. And, uh, what, yeah. Were you able to keep people employed? Did you have to apply for state or federal? And how, how did you handle oh, God, it? Yes. Yeah, no, we, we, we have 18 full-time people. Um, and uh, three of us has, have remained full-time working because we're going after all those federal, state, corporate foundation grants. Um, and 15 people have been furloughed, but they're all working. We're all paying. We're paying them all one to three days a week, depending on what they're doing, maintaining their health insurance. And because of the federal support, in particular, and the state, well, between unemployment and the stimulus payments, everybody has been not, kept whole through this entire thing. You know, with some blips along the way, God knows, you know, the biggest blip, the orange blip that went away, finally, you know, cleared the way for some clarity to return. And, um, you know, what what Biden just did in terms of pushing, uh, allowing unemployment through Labor Day is just a gift. You know, I mean, we're, we're we would be we would really be in bad. The, our employees would really be in bad shape. Now, obviously, I have over 100 part-time employees, and unfortunately, I wasn't able to help them. Um, I was able to find some money for the Philharmonic musicians um, to about 30 grand to help cover their losses in March because we had, you know, we had to cancel their concerts so close in um, to try and help, you know, and also allow them to maintain unemployment. You know, the payments were were carefully made. And um so, you know, honestly, I feel like we've been very, very fortunate. I think it has a lot to do with the fact that, you know, the Bardivon, UPAC, the Philharmonic, they're much loved institutions that have been around for, you know, Bardivon's 150 years old, right? But, um, you know, I think that, that that has a lot to do with why from foundations, local foundations, corporations, and individuals, you know, our membership, we have like 2,000 members. Um, they continue to up their, you know, to pay their membership dues, even though there's no shows, you know, they're not getting an advantage. You know, they're just supporting us because they, you know, believe in what we're doing. So that's been huge. And and I can't tell you the federal support, you know, those PPPs and, you know, all those acronyms that we learned very quickly. I mean, that's almost a million dollars, you know, between all the government things that have been made available and the uh, save our stages grant which you know uh, is famously was famously launched poorly uh, about two weeks ago three weeks ago it finally was launched successfully this past a week ago today actually and we were ready (laughs) very ready for that grant so we got ours in the first three hours of it opening so we have a good chance of seeing 
a lot of money, you know, relatively speaking, um, you know, if it holds out, you know, if there's still money left by the time our turn comes up, but I think there will be. So those things have been critical, totally critical. So, so back up a bit when you say the save our stages, um, I'm not familiar and maybe some of my listeners, what, what happened? Because a lot of the rollout during this whole thing was there's no playbook. There's nothing that people yeah. knew. So what happened with Save Our Stages? Yeah, well, Save Our Stages was created by, um, God, I can't remember where that, I think he's in the Midwest, like Cleveland. This guy, Moose, is his, is his nickname, um, which is an excellent name for somebody <laughs> trying to find money. Um, he <laughs> created uh, he created a nonprofit organization called NEVA, the National Independent Menu Association. Um, they've got about 3,000 members, um, theaters just like the Bardavan and UPAC across the country who were facing disaster as a result of this. You know, not every theater is as fortunate as the Bardavan and UPAC to have this great history and et cetera, et cetera. You know, some of them don't have that, you know, or have whatever, you know, or maybe they're newer or whatever it is. Um, so he created this organization and hired lobbyists and man, they worked the federal government and they got, um, what's her, well, besides um, Chuck Schumer, who was on board from the get-go. Senator um, Gillibrand. Amy Cor Gillibrand, I'm sure, I, I, she wasn't really directly involved, but uh, Amy Klobuchar was. Oh, okay. And okay. she she was very, because you know, it was a national thing. She was very into it. Anyway, they brought it, uh, they, they made it a part of the 1.9 trillion um, it's a $15 billion package for venues. Now it expanded into museums, uh, comedy clubs, uh, movie theaters, as well as venues and promoters uh, and, and booking agents, even of all things, <laughs> even can go to this thing. So it, it's a big, big attempt. You know, honestly, since the WPA of FDR, there has been nothing like this ever ever for arts organizations and individuals in America, not even close. And it, and it's, it, it bodes well. I mean, if the, if Congress or at least most of Congress can, can see their way that 15 billion, it's worth 15 billion to keep the, you know, performing arts venues in America open. That's good. That's a good acknowledgement, you know, to make. So, um, so anyway, they, they created this grant program through this SBA um, now, the SBA, uh, you know, the Small Business Association is not set up to give grants to arts organizations at all. You know, they don't they don't know anything about arts organizations. So getting the um, guidelines written and the questions, you know, this again was part of NEVA, Moose, NEVA and us. We were all part of it to to get to to give send questions to the SBA about questioning how their guidelines are being written because they have to understand how we operate, you know, and it was, it was fascinating, but you know, I have to say it all worked out or, I mean, nobody's gotten a nickel yet, but, but the grant application that Amory just went through, it took her about three hours. Um, she said it was so much better than what she anticipated it being. Uh, and we had to download and I should say upload so much documentation, which makes sense. I mean, the SBA wants to see the dollars and cents. They want to see the contracts. They want to you to prove that you do what you do, which is fine with me because I don't want 
that money going to fraud to fraudsters. You know, I wanted to go to a performing arts center. So, so it, it's so that's just part of it. And they also created a forty-five billion dollar uh, grant uh, uh, application for restaurants across the country, which I think will disappear fast because there's a lot more restaurants than there are theaters. And um, so these little, not little, these large grants have really been. It's a. It's going to save us. It really, literally, is going to save us. And also, more importantly put us in a position when we finally reopen that's stronger than we were when we closed, which is great, you know, yeah. because we all have to recover from this, you know, and it's, it's weird. It's a, it's disorienting, but we're focusing on the future in an optimistic way. So. All right. So, so you had your, you know, weekends and evenings back a little bit. Did it give you yeah. any time to reflect a little bit about, the the future of programming, the future of theaters, you know, and 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 you know, for our listeners, let I I, I just can't say enough good things about the Bardavan and UPAC and how they are they are anchor institutions for the communities in Kingston and Poughkeepsie. But Chris, I mean, has this given you an opportunity to say, hey, maybe we should do something a little differently? Well, you know, it's funny. I mean, it, or I should say it's odd. You may re- know this. Uh, Randy Fleischer, who was the conductor of the Hudson Valley Philharmonic for 28 years, um, died very suddenly and horror just just was horrible to hear for all, for all you know, we're all crushed by it. Uh, last August of 2020. And it was not COVID related. He had a, 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 a undiagnosed heart attack. I mean, he just boom, he was dead in a minute. And um and he was loved. I mean, 28 years, he was the conductor. So, so that was a shock. And it really made us take a deep breath and a step back. For instance, how do you proceed? You have to replace the conductor. But generally speaking, you replace the conductor by, um, you know, going through a long process, including a lot of in-person meets and stuff with potential and, you know, national search. And we just were not prepared to do that, especially all on Zoom with only three full-time people. So we met with the orchestra and decided to hire five uh, guest conductors. And our focus with those guest really? conductors that they are, would that they be either women or people of color, except for one guy who's a member of the orchestra who is going to conduct the opening uh, concert. He's the principal of uh, uh, percussionist, but he's also a, a conductor in New York City and a great guy. Because the first concert is going to really reflect on the last year and on Randy's death and on COVID and on Black Lives Matter, on everything that we can jam into this opening concert. And we wanted to have a member of that orchestra conduct that concert so that it was all just in the family, so to speak. But the other four, uh, we currently we have a black man, a black woman, an Asian woman and a white woman set to go to conduct these concerts. Now, that's the tip of the iceberg. The 10 or 11 soloists for it, whether they're singers or violin players or cellists or whatever they're doing, they are also people of color or women. All of our programming is very focused on women composers, works that deal with socially relevant themes, et cetera. And and we were going in that direction with Randy at all times, and we were doing a lot of very... uh, um, exciting programming, 
But now we just feel such an urgency. This is the one part of our business that we can, can control. You know, we, we decide right. on the repertory, you know, it doesn't just come in the door. So it's been, so it's exciting and, and it's, you know, it's kind of risky, but not really. So we're still going to give the audience Beethoven and Mozart and those people, but they're going to see a lot of new faces of different hues than they're used to. And I think that's really important. And we're also going to do, you know, we do that anyway with our programming because it's the nature of the beast, you know, I mean, that artists are come from everywhere. Um, but we are, we are, cha- we are focusing on that, Jonathan, um, on trying to be as relevant as we can be with everything we do. And you can't, you know, you're not going to do that with Brit Floyd, you know, the, the Pink Floyd light show rock band. It's just going to be fun. Okay, fine. That's okay. <laughs> I, I can't figure out how to make that socially relevant, but, um, uh, but it's okay. But it's a lot of other stuff. Yeah, like for instance, we're 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 looking to bringing like we're bringing. We're pretty sure we got Patty Smith coming now, and and doing a thing called she calls words and music, and we've encouraged them. Let her speak from now. She doesn't have to read a book she wrote two years ago. She can talk about what's happening right now. It'd be fine with us. Uh, David Sedaris is going to be coming again in the fall. He always talks about what's happening right now. So you know we're we're hoping to have, you know, to be more of a focal point for the community to, to, to get, you know, besides the uplift of beautiful music and rock and roll or whatever you like, you know, whatever the kind of thing, dance, whatever it is, film, if we can add some, you know, coherent, socially relevant programming, we will. That's our goal. And that's well, what's changed. That's know, really. pretty impressive. And that's pretty incredible the way that you've pivoted to incorporate the the moment in time that we're in. Um, do, will, will all the facilities open or do you still, I mean, so let, let's talk about the two principal ones. So there's UPAC and Kingston yeah. and Bardavon. Yeah. Are you still under 75% or 50% for a while? And yeah. then, yeah, how, how is this going to work? Yeah, I, actually, I think Cuomo just today, you know, he just said, everything's open fully. Except theaters. We're <laughs> 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 like, yeah, duh. Um, but but I think I, I didn't read the fine print. Uh, I think he went up to 33% or something today, you know, except for, I don't know. It doesn't matter. He hasn't, we have to be full. That To answer your question, we have to open at 100% because um, for a lot of reasons, but not the least of which being that I can't pay the artist fees. Unless I can sell enough tickets, not to any you know, all the other expenses that come with um, with putting on a show. You know, if an artist costs fifty thousand dollars and you can only sell five hundred tickets, uh, you know, what are you going to do? You know, you can't charge one hundred fifty dollars for every ticket. So, you know, it's so so we're proceeding as though both venues will open fully in August. Um, okay. We're booking accordingly. We have a bunch of shows booked August, September, October, right into next year. Um, and we're actively doing others, you know, including the Philharmonic opening the end of September. Again, the Philharmonic is another, you know, we have to be able to fit 50 or 60 musicians on the stage. So if we can't, aren't allowed to do that, we can't do a concert. So, you know, we're, so we're just acting what I've been seeing and we've all been seeing since January or January 21st, let's say is, um, is a rapid exclamation, you know, a rapid increase in people getting vaccinated, 
um, in, in restrictions being you know pulled back. I mean, there's a real, real push to reopen, and you know, hopefully enough people will get vaccinated. I, I hated seeing the Times story today that we doubt we'll hit herd immunity. I'm like, why do you even have to say that? You know, why don't you? Why can't you just be a little more positive? You know. Um, so, you know, we're going to have to live with this forever. I'm like, okay, <laughs> thank you for ruining my day. Um, so, you know, look, if everybody has to wear a mask, you know, until they sit or whatever the heck the deal is, we'll do it, but we can't really open halfway. It's just, it's not possible. And so if they push us, if that doesn't happen, you know, and I'm not speaking alone. I, I talk to colleagues up and down the East coast. Every week we have a meeting, uh, especially the guys up north who do Broadway national tours of Broadway. They've been told that um, Hamilton and Lion King will be on the road as of the September, because if necessary, those shows can work to a reduced house because they're paid for 15 times over. They've already made their money. So they're willing, they're willing to lose a couple of bucks to get on the road. Um, but all the shows on Broadway, they can't do that. I mean, the expense is way too much. So, so it's interesting, you know, it's also look at the South of our country. If you're, you know, if you want to go to Florida or Texas, you probably can play, play a full house. You know, (laughs) I mean, they've been, they've been pretty much 50% open since December. We have a colleague in Florida, um, who, who's been running his 1800 seat theater with 900 people. And I'm like, wow, that's just seems terrifying to me. <laughs> but, um, you know, and before vaccinations, this was before vaccinations even hit, you know, you know, I, you know, Florida is one of those States. that's just like, I, Texas, you know, what are you people thinking? Um, anyway, so yeah, we have to open fully and we're going to open both of them and hopefully it'll be fine. All right. So let, let's broaden the discussion a bit about, um, because I think you've alluded to it several times and, I'll, I, you know, I, I'll, I'll talk a little bit later at the conclusion of this about what Pattern's doing this year um, to try mm-hmm. to help the arts out. But um, right. what, look, I, I would like to say, since I've known you for years, that the arts are in people underestimate the importance of the arts to children to adults to communities and the presence of upac the bardavan the Hudson valley philharmonic but i'd rather hear it from you how important are the arts <laughs> Pretty, pretty, pretty darn important, John. <laughs> yeah. They're, well, you know, look, just the. No, oh, we're frozen. The economics. I mean, we, we spent off about 11 on top of buying a ticket. And it's and it's uh, that. So, so just the economic benefit alone is huge. And, you know, we fill every single restaurant in town whenever we have a show. I mean, that's just wonderful. But our education programs are, again, about 20 years ago, we made a really concerted effort to make sure that our programs for kids were the most sophisticated, 
uh, intelligent, that they never spoke down to children, but they only spoke up to them. And, and, and so those programs have been super important to teachers in terms of how they can relate to their children. For instance, we just did a, a sugar skull. We just did this uh, stream, because uh, that's all we can do now, of a show called Sugar Skull, which celebrates the Day of the Dead, Mexico's Day of the Dead. This, we had 4,000 kids watch this thing, and the teachers were writing us letters of, they were, they were practically crying. They were so happy that there was finally some programming for their Hispanic classwork, classmates so that the kids who, who speak Spanish as a first language actually had a program that was about them, you know, that wow. spoke of their traditions and their, you know, heritage, et cetera. And, and we do that kind of thing a lot. And that's kind of vital to, you know, another show that we put out called Step Africa, which is about stepping, which is a traditional African-American dance form created out of um, fraternities and sororities in, in, black, uh, in all black colleges, um, you know, like a long time ago. So, so that had an immediate impact on, on African-American audiences, uh, kids in, in school. Stuff like that is, um, you know, you can't, you can't replace it with something else. I mean, it's got to be a performing artist that's going to give you that experience. And um, so we're very proud of it, you know, and that's, and that's kind of, you know, that encapsulates the, the importance besides just the spiritual aspect of it that, you know, when you go to hear your favorite artist, whether that's, you know, Tony Bennett or Carlos Santana, you're going to get a huge huge spiritual uplift from having that experience. And that's the advantage of my job really is that I get to have those experiences every week to have some great artist do an incredible performance. That's just moves you in different ways for different reasons, you know? So, um, Chris, what, so that's, what, that's really, yeah. Chris, wasn't it in the beginning of the pandemic that in Italy that was so hard hit, that there were people opening up their windows and singing like opera outside yeah. in the street just to boost morale. I, 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 you I know, know, I remember that. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. You made you think like everybody in Italy knows opera. Yeah. You know? <laughs> like, wow. And they're singing in Italian. Yeah. Uh, no, I know. It's hilarious. Well, you know, that happened in the city, in New York City, too. Um, it's that wonderful Broadway performer. Um, I can't remember his name now. Uh, uh, he lived like uh, on the same block as one of the hospitals. So when workers would leave, he'd bust his window open and sing, you know, a cappella. Um, You'll never walk alone. You know, oh, that's <laughs> awesome. And, you know, or, or climb every mountain or whatever. And, you know, just and he did it every night. And, and as a matter of fact, we're playing um, one of the pieces the orchestra is going to be doing this season is called Seven O'Clock Shout, which is all about, you know, opening the doors and windows for the workers, the, the essential workers going home and having the community give shout outs, bang their pots and pans together. And, you know, yeah, and that's one of the beautiful things that happened, you know, obviously during this whole nightmare is, you know, humanity. Well, I always thought it was interesting that, you know, there were people that believed in STEM education, which is science, technology, education, math, I think, or engineering right. and math. Right. And then there are people like me and 
Leonardo da Vinci, who are actually steam guys, where you insert the A for arts, because it, it just causes the mind to think very, very differently about science and technology and everything. There's something about the presence of the arts, which you've been so, so relevant, so important in the Hudson Valley in terms of ensuring that there is that component. And I think that's part of bringing us back is your time and hopefully the money you were describing enables you to do this. Um, right. you, ha- you had this chance to, you know, we don't want to, I don't want to go back to the way it was. I want to think about the way it could be. And I think, you know, the arts and, and let's interpret that very broadly so that it could be painting, it could be music, it could be mm-hmm. uh, the writ- yeah. uh, the spoken word as a form of art. Um, I think there's this amazing opportunity for us to think differently about the art. And, um, you know, it, it, and it, I'm, I'm glad you cleared this up for me because I had heard that the Lion King, Wicked, Hamilton were going to be able to open. But the point is that they've been paid for many times over, is I think what you said earlier. But that yeah. newer productions, how, how do they do this? I mean, whether it's a new musician or. You know, they have to, you know, it's like the Metropolitan Opera. You know, how do you get that gigantic machine? I mean, okay. they have 150 people on the stage, you know, together. Uh, you know, that football field size stage there, right? So, um, but yeah, I mean, all the unions in New York City are trying to figure this out. You know, from the actors to the stagehands to the musicians, they're all trying to figure it out. The bottom line is vaccination is key, of course. Uh, I'm sure that will be a given in terms of all performers, period. But you're not going to be able to do that necessarily with the audience. So, you know, showing a, showing a pass at the door that you've been vaccinated, I suppose, could be a way that's the slowest possible way to get people in a, <laughs> into a theater is to make them stop and show me this thing that's got print this small on it. But at any rate, um, and I know New York State has created an app uh, that could hopefully expedite yes. that. and. Who knows? You know, Ticketmaster will probably come up with some app for, you know, enter if you're vaccinated, you know, or something. I have no idea. Um, Yeah, I mean, I don't, you know, I don't know how Broadway's, it's a really hard, you know, Broadway's the worst, the hardest part. I mean, look at those lobbies on Broadway. There is no lobby. It's like a pass-through, you know, and so what do you do during an admission? You know, everybody stands up and goes to a bar that's teeny. You know, I mean, it's like, so, uh, you know, it's almost as though everybody's going to have to sort of take their chances. I mean, if we open fully and you're vaccinated, then you could feel somewhat secure. But if you're not vaccinated, why would you go anywhere? Why would you why would you go into a crowded lobby? It, It just makes no sense. But. You know, what can and we do? by the way, for those listening, that was Chris Silver's uh, uh, plead with people <laughs> to go get vaccinated, which we all should do. Um, Chris, you've it's you on know, both our marquees right now. <laughs> over the years, you have taught me a lot about like the touring acts, like Live Nation. You know that. So right. it's not right. so 
a venue has to rely, it, it may have its own idea of who it wants, but if, it, if you're relying on Live Nation, which controls so many of the touring acts, then right. don't they have to first back up and go, who's even willing to go out on tour? You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. Who's going to get on the bus, you know, with 20 other guys, you know? Uh, I mean, like I said, you know, you don't see Bob Dylan announcing any dates. I mean, you know, and he is one, he is a road warrior. I mean, he does a hundred shows a year and he, what, he turns 80 in two weeks, I think. And, um, and he's going to go out again. So when really, Jonathan, when Bob Dylan announces dates, then probably things are happening again. But yeah, I mean, Bethel Woods totally is a Live Nation venue. And so is SPAC up in Saratoga. So they completely are booked for the most part. I mean, I think Bethel does some of their own shows, but um, by, by Live Nation, we are not. I mean, we are not controlled by any, any major industry other than, you know, we make our own choices. We have book shows with Live Nation and with Bowery Presents and with, you know, AEG, with all the big companies that are out there. But that, that's not... We don't have to depend on that. But you're so right. Um, you know, the Beach Boys, how are they going to all get together? They're a bunch of old guys. You know, how are they going to all get together in the bus? You know, I mean, all those acts, young act, doesn't even really matter who it is. It's like you have to, you know, it's not even just getting in the bus. You have to get out, go to a hotel that you've never been in, hope that it's clean, you know, go go to the venue, hope that there's food that's good and that, you know. Hope, hope, hope. I mean, before, it's always hard. The Touring is one of the hardest things, period. Some people romanticize it like, oh, so romantic. It's not romantic. It, it's, it's hard, hard work going to a different town in a bus. You know, I mean, some artists have it a little better, a little more luxurious, but it's still a grind. You know, it's still getting into a new space almost every day going through this routine, staying up late, eating food that you don't know where it came from, et cetera, et cetera. You know, and that's why we treat our, we try to treat ours like absolute gold so that, you know, I, we've had artists take pictures of our hospitality to say, send this to the next venue. This is what we want it to look like, you know, stuff like that. We really bend over backwards because we really do know how hard it is. And you want them to be happy, you know, when they're your venue you don't want them to be pissed off you know you want them to be oh this is these people treat me great so well yeah it's Christopher, hard thanks for spending some time with us i i know that on behalf of the entire hudson valley we do hope you're 100 back and 100 open um the arts um all that you do in all your facilities and thinking about it contributes so much to why people want to live and visit the Hudson Valley. So thanks again, Chris. You're very welcome. You're very welcome. Take care. Thank you for tuning in to Patterns and Paradigms, the Pattern Podcast. For more information about this episode, visit our website, patternforprogress.org forward slash podcast.